What is up, guys? This podcast is brought to you by Hans and Mike. <laughs> How are you guys doing? <laughs> so, Mike, you you might be. So, I want to tell you something. It's okay. been extremely hot here, and it's been very sunny. And I've gotten about one hour of sprinting in the sunlight. It, I think I got too much heat. So, I just want to ask you if you if you're a little bit jelly at the moment. Oh yes, it's quite cold here. It's about <laughs> it's about uh, I think twelve degrees outside, and uh, my hands are freezing. So for everyone out there, I'm wearing gloves while I'm doing this podcast because I live in a uh, <laughs> like a uh, what's it nineteen forties house or something, and there's zero insulation, particularly around the windows. Yep. So it's freezing. Have you ever heard about that house? Pete talked about like a, I think it's an adobe house where they make it of clay. It's com- quite common there in Texas, I think. Uh, yeah, they have houses like that here. A lot of times, like they don't, I don't think they make it traditionally anymore, at least in the city areas. They, um, what they do is they make the house and then they kind of put an adobe covering on the outside. So it looks like adobe. Oh, okay. Yeah, because Pete talked about like how good that place is insulated. Like in the summer, it's cold and the winter is hot or at least mild and like very stable. You would not think that I think, I don't know what to make it with clay or something, but so stable. He said there was a house built in the 1800s. It survived a couple earthquakes and it was like fine, <laughs> like no problem at all with the house. A so very resilient, pretty cool. Might be something to look into like a low toxicity house when it comes to like insulation and, and stuff like that. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, I have never lived in one, but they are, you can see them here. You, even in, even in Florida, some people have like, they have that style of house. Um, but usually this for now, the modern houses around, I assume are built regularly. And then that style is kind of added on after for the stylistic effect, less so for the specific effects. But in, I know in Mexico where some of my friends are right now, the houses are actually made like that and you can purchase a house that's made in that in that way the the adobe i think it's it's called adobe yeah Yeah, i'm not exactly sure i haven't looked into it but it seems pretty cool but um so apart from freezing out there how how else is it uh, going oh it's pretty good i'm gonna have some time off next week which is excellent and then uh yeah i'm just gonna relax i'm just gonna take it easy been working pretty hard <laughs> yeah that's exciting how long you're taking off like a week or so yeah we so we we re-signed our contracts so we took a week in between the contracts so we could just take it easy relax uh you know take a break these past couple of days that we've been there have been rough they've just like patients have a lot of problems i had a lady who she had a peripheral vascular disease so her circulation to her extremities is extremely poor, like extremely poor, so poor that the vasculature in her right leg completely collapsed and she lost all of her toes are necrotic. Her whole gets patches of necrosis and gangrene all up and down her leg. So the, uh, the doctor went back in to stent her leg to stent the arteries in her leg so that they could open the arteries up and she can have blood flow but the stents collapsed. The stents didn't work. So she, she just 
like she just lost the leg. So the leg was freezing cold. It was starting to turn purple. It had already had gangrene on it. It was, yeah, it was a bad, it was really rough. And it was just from uh, diabetes, just from extended diabetes over the course of years, uncontrolled. I mean, she, she could have controlled it. She chose not to. And she uh, just blasted through her arteries and now she's going to lose her leg. So her, her heart was had, she had extreme amounts of vascular damage in her heart as well as uh, as well as throughout the rest of her body. So I think she had had like a quadruple bypass Mm, uh, like 20 years ago or 15 years ago or something. Yeah. I've I've seen a study interesting just as a side note talking about like vitamin D and diabetes and that, vitamin d works together with magnesium so even though people had normal levels of vitamin d if they didn't have normal levels of magnesium it didn't really improve their diabetes so like all of these nutrients work together and I, like i don't know what her diet was like but i think like most people are on a very highly refined diet so you're not getting any kind of magnesium probably not getting a lot of sunlight either and um, a lot of these lifestyle stuff eventually just wreaks havoc it's pretty crazy that like i've heard so many stories how people they they get diabetes and then it's like, well, you know, it's inevitable. There's nothing I can do about it. Or I don't even want to do about it. Like, I don't even want to learn about things. Just kind of like accept it. Like, oh, this is how it is. I'm going to be on my meds and I'm not going to stop my, my diet that I'm eating. Like, <laughs> that seems pretty crazy. Well, the thing is, is in most of these situations and pretty much in the vast majority of situations that I have with my patients, it's self-induced. So the people will be in there and guy will have a stroke or he'll have someone will have a heart attack or someone will have some weird situation. And then it's like, Oh, I had a stroke, but I smoked for the past 30 years. And it's like, okay, what, what did you expect? You know, what did you expect your outcome was going to be in the long run? Did you think that you were going to, you know, feel good in the long run and not have any vascular issues? And because the thing is like, this information is known. All of the, all, all of this information is out there. People know smoking is not good. Same thing with diabetes. The lady was, lady worked in a hospital as an educator and she got diabetes and she didn't. And then when things get bad in the back end, the people get upset. And she's she's like, yesterday she was uh, upset with God. She was like, she was like, God, why are you doing this to me? All this type of stuff. And so there's a couple there's a couple things I at play. I think first of all, there's a lack of responsive, like self responsibility with people, um, especially in the hospital. You know, I have alcoholics in there with full blown liver disease, and their liver went, their kidneys went. They're good. We have to put them on hospice. They're bleeding all over the place because they're they don't have any clotting factors, and the vasculature in their GI tract is destroyed. So they're just bleeding out all the time. We have to keep giving them blood. And they're in there and they're just miserable. And it's, and the, the perspective is like, why, why is this happening to me? Like, I hear that, I hear that often. Uh, and it's just, you drank ridiculous amount. Like some people it's like, you know, eight ounces to 12 ounces to 16 ounces of hard liquor a day. And they, people are doing stuff for years. And then they, on the back end, their bodies get trashed and then, and then the question is, why is this happening to me? That And it, it's like, because of what you've done over the course of years. Now, to be fair, with a lot of the disease processes, people don't, like, there's not a level of understanding 
around how things work. So for example, if you have heart disease, they just tell you to go on a low fat diet and take vegetable oils. And there are people who actually do this. So there's, there's people who religiously take their statins, religiously take their blood pressure medications, religiously eat low fat and go on all these diets and their heart disease just continues to get worse um, over time, just a little bit slower perhaps than the person who doesn't care. And then they, uh, then those people also will be like, I don't know why I got this. I was healthy. I exercised. I did this. I did that. And I think part of it is because the advice out there is, is kind of trash. A lot of the like, like, sure, low fat diet, fine. But like the idea that eating refined grain products that are low fat and then also switching over to higher amounts of polyunsaturated fatty acids is going to solve somebody's heart disease or even using their statins and the other drugs that they get put on is going to solve the problem. doesn't make much sense. And the same thing with diabetics, right? The, it's like, don't eat too much carbs, like manage your carbs, but that's it. It's not a perspective of like a metabolic issue. It's, oh, your body just stops responding to insulin. You just have too much, you have too much sugar coming in. So it's a combination of there's like really crap advice out there for people to deal with the issues. Oftentimes the advice that they put out there for people is untenable for them as well because it requires entire lifestyle changes. So it's, and people need help with that. That's not something that you just do in a week. It's like all of a sudden, oh, I'm have diabetes. Now I'm going to go and I'm going to like go and change my entire lifestyle. And in a couple of weeks and bam, I've eliminated my diabetes. Some people do that and they get results. But for, I think for the vast majority, that doesn't happen. And then the other thing too, is some people, like people will continue to do things that just cause them harm and cause them problems that they, I, I don't think people understand the repercussions. So I've had patients, like I had a guy in his forties who was type two diabetes and he was starting to require insulin. And I sat down with him and I told him, you know, the only steps from here, if you continue where you're at, you're either going to lose fingers and limbs. You're going to go possibly go blind. You're going to need dialysis. You're going to have to get uh, stents put in your heart or you're going to have to put vessels on your heart or you're going to have a massive stroke, or you're going to have like you were, it's only gets worse. You will only suffer more continuously and it just gets worse. And, and as we see in the hospital, the end stages of stuff, it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse and worse, unless you actually take responsibility and change what you're doing. So then the other thing too, that people don't recognize is that the damage, when you get to these states where you have like a diagnosis, like coronary artery disease or diabetes or whatever it is, that is years, most often years of damage to the body. It's not just like I did something yesterday or I did something this past couple of months. It's like, no, this is years and years and decades and decades of some type of dysfunction that has, that has moved towards a breaking point. So a lot of that isn't discussed. Those perspectives aren't there. It's just like a lot of patients actually think like, oh, I have diabetes. I take my medications. I'll be fine. And I can do what I'm going to do as long as I take my medications. And that's not the case. The medication is just prolong the negative or, or put off or ex kind of minimize the negative outcomes. So they don't come as fast, but they still come. And sometimes they can even make it worse. So, yeah, for sure. Um, I'm going to say something that might offend a lot of people, but luckily there's not a lot of women watching the show. So I don't think most people are going to be offended. Um, but I want to talk specifically about, you know, you're talking about religion and, you know, oh, why did God do this to me? And so I want to talk something that's very sensitive for people and that's children, right? <laughs> and let's say someone gets someone that's uh, autistic or someone that has this or that problem. It's like, 
well, God gave us a special case, you know, because he knew we, we needed it. We were capable of handling. It's like, that's BS. Okay, let's just stop that because it was your fault. That child turned out like that. There is so many good research pointing to that. If you don't look after yourself in terms of thyroid, your hormones, your nutrient requirements, proper sleep, those kind of stuff, that negatively impacts the fetus and the child in your womb. And that predisposes that child to things like uh, neurodegenerative conditions, autism, you know, all of this kind of stuff. It's not like, and then, you know, people get like autistic child or, you know, someone that is already degenerating in the womb. It's like, oh, why did God do this to us? It was like, uh, let's take responsibility. You did this to yourself. (laughs) But the thing is, perhaps you did not know this. And the thing is, like, people don't want to take responsibility. It's like, you want to tell me my child's autistic because of me? You know, it's like, I, I can't take responsibility for that. And But the thing is, you have to, because there is like so clear. And the thing is, it, it's just, if you see like the, what people do, um, like what women do specifically when it comes to diet, um, when it comes to lifestyles, so a lot of women just starve themselves. So they already have lots of nutrient deficiencies and hypothyroid. Now you get a child, chances are that depending on your, your, four, your four fathers, you know, how your baseline health will be. Some people just have a good baseline, no matter how much they abuse themselves. So they might get an okay child. But let's say you don't have a good baseline to begin with. And now you don't care for yourself that much. You're probably going to get a child that's going to be subpar. Just hang on. Mm-hmm. Indeed. So yeah, just basically talking about, you know, you have to take responsibility for your health because it doesn't just affect you. If you're going to get a child that's, dramatically going to affect your child so as a man yes you can also contribute to to having a suboptimal child you know because it's not just a woman's responsibility it's still a man's responsibility but mostly the woman like in the woman whatnot and then after the child's born it's still as the couple your responsibility to give that child the right nutrition and stress-free environment and stuff to make sure that child gets you know healthy is raised healthily and I don't think a lot of people do that very correctly. Like, at least my parents said, at least I feel like I was raised in a more or less stress-free environment. But in terms, when it comes to diet, you know, that aspect was pretty horrendous. I just wish that, that could have been different. But yeah, I, I think the point of this all is just take responsibility for, yeah, don't just like, oh, why did God do this to me? No, you're doing it to yourself. Uh, but people don't necessarily know this. And I know a lot of people say, like, oh, I'm going to take offense about this. This is not true or what, whatever. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a combination. I think that um, a lot of it falls on the parents making sure that they're in health, good health and whatnot. But I also think there are other factors in the environment that can cause issues to produce children with different negative outcomes and whatnot. Um, and that can even be after the child's born. I'm not going to discuss them directly because they're quite controversial. But I think that there's um, quite a few factors involved. And it, that does come down to parents as well. Because the parents are making decisions for the child when they're born in a lot of those circumstances. And you can see in certain areas, certain parts of the world have much higher rates of autism and whatnot despite being highly developed and having access to healthcare, yada, 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 X, Y, Z, whatever it is, access to food, healthcare, this and that. But the people continue to get sicker and sicker and have increased chronic disease, et cetera. And the children have worse outcomes, increased, um, increased autism rates, particularly 
where I grew up in New Jersey, the autism rates exploded. They were out of control. Uh, I forget what the actual rate was, but it had gotten like pretty, like it was one in like double digit numbers. It wasn't one in like a hundred or one. I think it had gotten down to one in double digit numbers. So, which is absolutely insane. And the outcomes for that in society later on are going to be quite problematic. But I think that there's multiple factors involved. I think a lot of the child's health really does come down to the parent's health and what the parents are doing overall. And I think I see with a lot of children being born to mothers through like in vitro fertilization or all of these different methods, I really wonder what the outcomes for these children are going to be long-term because like the fact that the mother cannot get pregnant or is unable to get pregnant is, I think is indicating some underlying dysfunction. And then to force the pregnancy through some type of technological means when the body is seemingly unable to handle it, I think may have some negative outcomes. The other thing I think the other things that I think may have some negative outcomes are children in the long term for the that child's health are children who are born super prematurely or have to go to neonatal ICUs. And then if they and I don't think many people have been in a neonatal ICU, but the the child gets put in an incubator and they put uh, they put a feeding tube in the child and then they'll feed them formula. to get their weights up essentially and do a series of procedures, et cetera. It's like, I don't know what, what is the outcome of that in the long run? How does that kind of affect? Because they're already, they're already starting off way. They're already starting off at a huge deficit in most cases. If you're if the beginning of your, your development, you didn't fully form in the womb, you come out and then the, the your development is, is categorized or characterized by soy formula being pumped into you while you're in an incubator. I think that that's, um, there might be some problems with that long-term as far as health goes, especially if you consider that the baby is growing rapidly and it's incorporating soy formula at, into its tissues at, to create a structure. I think that that's, you know, it's like starting off building a house with some straw, no mud, nothing. You're, you're just, you don't have all the materials. We don't even, at this point, we don't even know what all the materials are, um, we're still looking into that. Even in breast milk, they're discovering new compounds to this day um, and discovering what they're for. So yeah, just overall, my perspective, I I would agree with you to a large extent that uh, the parent's health is extremely important for children and that a lot of the negative outcomes I think are that we're seeing with children, particularly in developed countries, that's, is related to parents not taking a conscious a conscious and concerted effort to make sure they are healthy and then that they're so that their children can be healthy. If in Weston A. Price's book, Nutrition and Physical Generation, he talks about how the different tribes and groups would put the mother and the father on special diets for a series of months prior to conception. And then afterwards, the mother would be on a special diet throughout her pregnancy. And then the children would all be raised on special diets up into a certain age, at which point they would move more towards the adult diets. So there was concerted efforts to build the structure and the strength in the children inside whichever area he was in. And that was kind of, that wasn't just in like one area. There was multiple areas where that was kind of a rule, Um, multiple areas in the world that they discuss in the book. So yeah, I think that taking responsibility for your health is extremely important, particularly if you want to have children.
but also if you want the back end of your life to be something that is not that is comfortable that is enjoyable because it, the disease processes and etc only get worse and as far as like the hospital experience or the modern medical experience i mean i get to see it on a, on a regular basis for a lot of these people it's it's hospital stays every month and then it's doctor office appointment to doctor office appointment throughout the day so that's what they do they are living at home they don't have to work or anything they have their they have money saved whatever it is whether on social security um and then they go from every day's doctor's appointments to doctor's appointments and then they're in the hospital almost every other month with or if they're the healthier ones they're taking a whole bunch of medications so yeah two things i want to touch on that what you spoke about this is kind of like a weird topic for a mains podcast talking about like <laughs> birth and <laughs> those kind of stuff but those are extremely important when it comes to like the development of like any kind of baby especially like male um so two things i want to touch upon is like what you mentioned it's not just diet but also the environmental uh, factors play a risk like you mentioned like new jersey there's increased uh, prevalence of like autism stuff so That can be stuff in the environment like heavy metals, uh, endocrine disrupting chemicals, like what, whatever the case there is that is causing that. And you, you can't necessarily say, so, well, you know, it isn't the parents' fault, it's in the environment. But the parents can still take steps to avoid some of that. Maybe you get an air filter, maybe you filter your water, you avoid plastics. You know, you still, you take steps to make sure that the environment and the food you consume is good quality. I know that's extra steps, maybe it's extra money, Um it's definitely more effort but once you have set all of these things in place you're going to be so much better off not just your child but also like your own health and i think it's very necessary to take those steps to, to drink clean, clean water have clean air don't uh, be stressed by the environment you're living in don't be stressed by uh like noise any kind of stress you know so it could be noise stress winter stress like that's one of the things in new jersey is so cold for so long the days tend to be shorter those kind of stuff stressful um So you, you have to take more steps, not just that, but also the environment, as you mentioned. And then the other thing I want to talk about, sorry, you, you want to say uh, something? Well, I just want to mention that I I, there are pollution pieces that I think are quite important to consider. But I think there's also certain medical interventions that may be something to look at and consider as well. Tell me more. Um, well, that could be problematic. Um, Is it the V, yeah. the v word? <laughs> uh. What what word? I'm I'm trying to think of a word, good word that begins with V. <laughs> Vac <laughs> vacuum. <laughs> vacuum. It's the vacuums in New Jersey. They're, they're picking out all the children. <laughs> all right. Um, <laughs> yeah, medical <laughs> interventions. Let's just say that. All right. Um, do you want to fill in something else before I continue with the next point? Mm -mm, it's all you. <laughs> all right. Um, then. Um, <laughs> I think one last point before I move on to the next one is that even if you're, you think you're consciously healthy, like you're going vegetarian, like you mentioned, it's just the guidelines out there is so horrendous that you think you're doing the right thing, but there's like, there's so many options. What do you do? What's the right diet? Like if you're new to this, you don't really know what's going on and you, you'd probably be um, conned into doing the wrong thing. So, you know, eating soy and uh, some xanthan gum or whatever is gut irritating. It's like, that's not optimal for you. You're kind of like conned into that. So, You, you can't necessarily say like, oh, it's your fault. Like, that person isn't a nutritionist. He's, isn't doing that for a full-time job. Anyway, the next thing is um, like the way people give birth is like exactly like you mentioned. What people do nowadays is that they, it's like, okay, we got pregnant. 
we want the baby nine months from now. We're planning this. This is a ceremony. We're going to have a photographer there and everything is specifically on this date. They get to the hospital. They induce the birth. They get a C-section. It's like, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> right? <laughs> like, first of all, you're, you're artificially inducing a birth. You have no idea what the cons- consequences are. You're getting a C-section. That has been shown to have detrimental effects on the, like, the development, like the microbiome the immunity, lots of stuff happening with the baby. That's so suboptimal. So all of these things that we do because, oh, we didn't want to go through the pain of giving normal birth. I'm just going to get a C-section. It's like all of this is, is creating detriments to the baby. You know, So there are natural herbs that can um, make the birthing process much easier that you can use that I'd rather go for that than just get a C-section. So there's many things that you have to do that's, um, you know, that's going to ensure the proper health of your baby. Anya is working on a course on that to help mothers like with the diet and like all of the steps to make sure you're doing the right thing. That's going to be coming out some, somewhere in the future for you guys. Um, but yeah, there's, there's so many aspects that you have to take in consideration when it comes to you, you're raising your child correctly. Oh, I wanted to mention about endocrine disrupting chemicals, like plastics and those kind of stuff, like drugs, like so many things are endocrine disrupting chemicals. Anything that's kind of like made, that's synthetic, uh, including heavy metals, you know, can be endocrine disrupting chemical. It uh, modulates the microbiome in a negative way, causes leaky gut, it causes testicular toxification, thyroid um, problems, oxidative stress, neurodevelopment tox- toxicity. So, you know, you're getting a baby that's not as smart. You, he, he doesn't go through puberty very well because he doesn't produce a lot of androgens. He's fatter because he's hypothyroid. All of this stuff because of the endocrine disrupting chemicals that you can do a good job at avoiding. So, um, yeah, it's a lot of things to take in consideration, but it's a responsibility to have a child. And I think a lot of people just get children while having no flippant idea what, what they're doing and what they need to do. You know, it, it's so easy to, to make a baby, to get a baby, and no one knows what to do, what's what right stuff to do, and how to properly care for that child, you know, which I think is crazy because you, you know, I can blame my parents for what they did. At least I, I'm not too messed up. But it's like, oh, why did you have me on this poor diet? I'm so mad at you, but I guess I didn't know. But you know, you can so negatively affect someone that's gonna get potentially can live for a hundred years. Imagine you're doing someone something to someone that you know is taking away the quality of life, and he's also living like he has the potential to live to hundred years. So you have to suffer for a hundred years because your parents didn't do the right thing. It's kind of what I'm yeah. trying to say. No, I agree. I agree with you. I think that I see a lot of people, and I, I. I in my experience with, with various people, the, pers- the people are having a baby and it's entirely a process for themselves a lot of times. So I, work, um, I work with a lot of young women a lot of times that it's like, I want to have a baby. And it's like, why? Because I just want a baby. And there's not a conservative effort, at least prior before having the baby, about making sure that the baby has a good life or things are set up whether that's financially and also from a health perspective. So it's like, and that's where you see things where it's like, I want to have, I want to have the baby on this date. So I'm going to have an induced labor and I want to, um, I don't want to feel anything. So I'm going to have an epidural and then they have, then they they have the baby and then it's through C-section with an epidural. And then I don't want to breastfeed because it's going to ruin my breasts. So the baby gets formula and it's like all of these decisions have a detriment for the baby. There's, there are documented detriments for getting epidurals with the baby. If the baby gets exposed to some of the medications, you can get respiratory depression when they're born. Um, and when they don't, when they don't have C-section or when they have C-sections rather than vaginal birth, the baby, because the baby gets a little bit compressed when they come through the vaginal canal, 
Uh, it allows them to expel some of the fluids from their lungs, which helps them breathe initially when they come out. With C-section, that doesn't happen. Um, when they induce labors, they use a compound or it's a, a hormone called oxytocin, but they, they pump it into your system. And the drug is called Pitocin. I think that's one of its names. And what this can do is this can fatigue the uterus uh, because it causes uterine contraction. When it fatigues the uterus, there's a possibility that the muscles in the uterus will not contract following the birth. And you can have kind of like a, it's kind of lax. And what the blood vessels in the uterus run through the meat, the, the, the muscles. And when the muscles contract, it, it contracts off the blood vessels in the uterus. Well, a lot of women, or there's a, with certain, with not a lot of women, but with a lot in certain situations, if the uterus is fatigued from excessive use of oxytocin, those blood vessels aren't contracted off by the muscular contraction because the muscles are fatigued. And then the woman starts to bleed out inside the uterus. And so then they have, then that's a whole process. So, and also C-sections, I don't know if anyone's ever seen one can be quite brutal and bloody and there can be risks for the mother herself on the back end, as far as scar tissue goes following a C-section. So it's not just like a no risk procedure. I would, if in my personal perspective for my fiance or for more anyone who and people in my family, I would highly recommend to avoid a C-section unless entirely medically necessary to avoid an epidural and to avoid, um, and inducing a labor, letting the baby reach the point that when it's ready to come out, unless the la- unless those things all are entirely medically necessary, if you're going to, if you have the baby, um, and you need, you need the, you need to have the labor induced because the baby's too large for the pelvis or whatever it is. Okay, fine. You know, those things like life-saving things, but just to get it done on a certain date because of X, Y, Z, I think that that, you know, the, like let the, let things move appropriately, particularly for the baby's health and particularly with C-sections. Cause as you mentioned, there's the C-sections have been associated with changes in the microbiome for the child. And then to afterwards to move, to have a child on formula is, ext- I think the outcomes in the research and the associations in the research are quite clear that formula feeding has a whole host of negative negative outcomes compared to having um, breast milk. So, and particularly what they're finding out now is that the breast milk that the mother produces is quite specific for that baby. So I think it's extremely important that the baby is breastfed. And I know a lot of women have problems initially with breastfeeding because they feel like their milk supply isn't coming down. And the milk supply, I think, to a large extent is a combination of adequate stimulation. So basically having the baby or having a pump present on the breast to stimulate that production of milk. And then the next piece is um, to be eating enough calories and nutrients to be able to supply that breast milk. I have my stepmom, when she had, um, when she had my stepsister, she wasn't very eating very much and her milk supply that she was coming out for the baby She wasn't number one, she wasn't getting a lot. And then number two, she was having a hard time. The milk wasn't like, it wasn't getting a lot and the baby necessarily didn't like it that much, but she wasn't eating very well after her pregnancy and she wasn't eating a lot at all. And so she was trying all these herbs and compounds and whatnot to get her milk supply to increase, but she wasn't do, she wasn't taking steps to making sure that her diet was solid and that her body had enough nutrients to provide the baby with milk. 
So and I'm sure she had some type of hormonal situation going on after her pregnancy, which is quite common because you have progesterone production just drops off. And you also have like quite a rise in prolactin and that can skew things for women a lot of times. And it is been hypothesized to be partially related to postpartum depression. So yeah, I think it's extremely important to consider the baby, what their outcomes are long-term. The, the first, the whole first, first portion of the life, including from the time of conception in the womb, all the way up until full growth is critical. Those, there's a series of critical periods in that time that determine the outcomes later on in life or can, can partially determine the outcomes later on in life for that human as an adult. So it's important to take a conscious perspective and a concerted effort to make sure that you're doing the correct things and trying to, or at least trying to do the correct things for your child so that they're, they don't have issues later on in their life. I'm sure the digestive issues that I have are partially related to some of the food that I ate growing up on top of the fact that I got fed uh, formula. And you're seeing massive rises in a series of diseases in our generation and in the generations below us that's documented in the research, uh, huge increases in cancers, huge increases in psychiatric disorders, huge increases in digestive disorders. And I think a large portion of that may be related to what's going on around child birthing and um, pregnancy practices. And then some of the raising practices, it's, it's not a focus. It seems to be falling out of focus to make these efforts. It's, Kids are just, you know, eating whatever they want. The food supply is poor. Um, there's a lot of access to accessory perspectives online and whatnot, creating different things like the, the family structure is being adjusted. I think to some extent, well, we know the family structure is being adjusted in these countries based on the divorce rates and based on single parenthood, et cetera, which have been massively rising and then rates of lack of marriage. So yeah, overall, I think it's important to make that concerted effort. I think that um, it's really something, as you mentioned, this person can have a hundred years of life and setting that person up correctly, both mentally and physically, yeah, I think is extremely important for their outcomes. And I know I've had to undo a lot of things that have happened to me. And if, if I had had, I think if I had had some things dialed in a little bit more in different areas there, I would have had less issues overall. And part of that is being, having access to poor poor information about health, right? Because you have, you see on now on social media, when you have people coming out, oh, my, my child's a vegan. I'm raising my child as a vegan. Uh, I'm not breastfeeding. I'm giving them this super organic soy formula and I'm raising them as a vegan. Um, whatever it is, it's like, they're already putting your child at a disadvantage, a huge disadvantage. You it, just in general outcomes if, for men, you want to, if you want your, your son to be successful with women, then you're going to want him to be taller. You're going to want him to have masculine features. You're going to want him to have muscle mass. You're going to want him to have a solid bone structure. Those things don't just happen randomly. Those things happen because of solid nutrition and what you've done prior to pregnancy and previous generations, et cetera. Genetics play a part, but also does all that other stuff. And I think to a large extent, modulate genetics massively. So, yeah. If you want an alpha baby, you won't have to be an alpha dad. That's the only one. <laughs> um, but I wanted to mention, uh, what did I want to mention? You were talking about, yeah, I I'm blanking. 
So we could just recap. I was listening, but if you could just recap, I, I want to see if I can get this thought back. What you mentioned just now. <laughs> C-sections, breastfeeding, soy formulas, oh. right? Because of yeah, yeah, okay, okay. So I wanted to talk about 5-alpha reductase. I was looking at again, like 5-alpha reductase, people that don't have enough of it, so they don't make any DHD. And even though they have normal testosterone, they obviously, when they go through puberty, DHD is extremely important for bone development, uh, the development of your sexual organs, uh, hair, you know, all those kind of good stuff, the only manly features. And that these people that didn't have DHT going through puberty, 55% of them decided to resonate being a male. <laughs> so the other 45% wanted to be a female, although they were technically males. So it's kind of like that, you know, being gay, you can kind of consider that being a deficiency in DHT. Like, you know, all of these people's decisions is fine, whatever. But I'm just thinking like, if these people didn't have enough DHT, almost 50%, you know, wanted to be like a female and with the other 50% wanted to be a male. So they kind of like, were like, oh, I'm going to decide to be this because I don't feel like any kind of gender because they didn't have enough DHT. And I know on the forum, people spoke about after they raised their DHT, they went straight. They, they weren't gay anymore. So yeah, DHT is extremely important. And if you're feeding your child like soy and nuts and seeds and plants, and that's not very good for testosterone and DHT specifically. So you want to do things that's going to support his sterogenesis and his production of DHT. So that's going to be like milk, eggs, meat, oysters, and fruit. That's going to be like an optimal diet for someone going to puberty to support sterogenesis, thyroid hormone production, DHT, those kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, I don't know the specifics and it is, I think, quite a controversial topic overall. But I know that there are some studies looking at um, differences in in uh, in sexual preference. So whether homosexual or heterosexual and trying to parse out hormonal differences and they are able to find some correlation. And I mean, it's not surprising to me that there that there is an, a physiologic basis for that at least from my perspective, because I see the, like the mind and thought processes, et cetera, as a product of the physiology, right? Because your, your brain, your tissues are generating consciousness. So if you have some types of alteration or variation inside the tissue structure or, or signaling, et cetera, whatever it is, I wouldn't be surprised if the behaviors were then different. I think it just makes rational sense. So I'm sure there's some type of alteration. The question is, is or, or variation, whatever it is, the question is why, like what's causing that underlying. And I know that there's some theories as like, I heard a theory. I don't know. I haven't read this one directly in the research, but I've seen it proposed. I haven't looked it up. This isn't an area of interest for me. Um, but there's talking about like maternal stress leading, like leading to that hormonal alteration variation. And that being like a, actually being useful because you, if you were say you were to produce a male child who had who was homosexual there was some type of like protection or relationship between the mother i've seen there's there's a multitude of theories i don't know what the cause is i don't know you know i don't i haven't looked into it enough to like have a have like a solid understanding of the area you know i'm probably not going to look into it very much to be honest but i'm not surprised that there would be some type of hormonal variation with the and then that cre creates a behavioral change. And you can see that as well with people, right? Do you see what happens when people go on SSRIs? It can completely change their, their disposition. It can completely change how they go about things. Not, not only 
mentally, not only in their relationships, but also physically, you know, side effects of SSRIs can include massive weight gain, can include insomnia, can include anxiety. Um, so there's, you see, even if it wasn't SSRIs, there's other drugs that do the same. Taking androgens will change the behavior of people as well. Yeah. So just where our, our consciousness and our behavior are direct is directly, I think is a, is, a, or not even directly. It's, it's a product of our physiology. Yeah. I should just clarify that. I'm not saying that the reason people are gay is because they don't have enough DHT. There's obviously multiple reasons why, and just taking DHT is not going to cure anyone, not that it should be cured or whatever, you know, it's everyone's choice, what they do and how they choose to be. Um, but it was just an interesting correlation. And that got me thinking into like you talked about like trauma, you know, maternal trauma and just how people perceive trauma in general. And I know a lot of people, they, they focus on, you know, how should I be dealing with this trauma? How should I be recalling this memory and then dealing with it and going through the steps and stuff. And once you have identified that trauma, you can start to deal with it. But the thing is like a lot of people, they don't really like now that you are aware of what happened to you, what is causing your certain behavior, you are just aware of it. So now behavior that is created from the trauma is not going to change unless you're like, okay, I'm, I'm reacting this way because of the trauma. So I'm not going to react this way of the trauma. So that trauma is equally as traumatic as the way it was. Even though you are aware of it, that trauma is not less traumatic unless you start to change your physiology. So your trauma, and, and this is the same thing with PTSD, they have trauma from battle or trauma from anything that, uh, that created, you know, the trauma, whatever. And once you change like your, your androgens, the allopregnilin, those kind of stuff that's more pro-GABA, you can like are able to deal with that trauma and the way you perceive, which is so super important, perceive that trauma. And because now you will react it differently. So if you know a scenario that triggers that traumatic memory, you're either going to freak out or you're just going to be like, oh, you know what? I I'm going to be chill about the scenario. I'm just going to treat it the right way because... The, the trigger that triggered the trauma is not going to be as intense because my hormones and my energy levels and all this stuff are in the right place. So then the, the thing is like, I think someone asked Pete about like memories and your physiology. I think we also talked about this before. It's like your physiology also determines kind of like your memories to a degree and how you respond to those memories and to those traumas. So to me, it's like, if you're going to a psych uh, psychiatrist and you're talking about your problems, you're identifying your traumas. Is that really helpful if your psychology is not in a good place? Like maybe if you're actually in a good place and you can deal with the trauma, you know, and as you mentioned, like drugs, like SSRI drugs, uh, birth control, um, androgen deprivation, all of this kind of stuff can change how you respond and how you uh, um, conduct yourself, how you respond to others, respond to threats, respond to whatever. So it's not like, you know what, I respond this way because of my trauma. It's like, I don't know, I respond this way because of the way my hormones are at the moment. So that's the thing is like change your hormones first. And that's going to be the best thing you do. And then those traumas can kind of like dissolve in itself. And then you can become aware of, you know, your traumas. It's like, okay, you know what? I, I'm becoming a douchebag when someone says this to me because it's triggering a trauma. It's like, I'm aware of it. I'm not going to be triggered by it. I don't have insecurities because my androgens are high. You know, I think it's very simple for someone to be triggered and all emotional if they're not in a good place. But if they get triggered and then are a good place, like, you know, you're right. You're right. I, I'm going to change this. This is not right how I am. So it's two, two different people kind of like uh, depending on your hormones and neurotransmitters and those kind of stuff. 
Yeah, I think it's entirely two different people. And I've seen that happen. I've seen that change with quite a few people, quite a few clients I've worked with, and even friends and family that have worked with. Their entire disposition, the way they interact with things is adjusted based on how they're feeling. So, and I'll give it, and I think uh, Dr. Pete mentioned this as something that I think was either Han Selly or Albert St. George, St. Georgie. They gave, um, they gave their students, their medical students, a shot of insulin to drop their blood sugar. And when they dropped their blood sugar, one of the students had like become like, who was generally always nice um, or very friendly. And one that had become like, uh, like kind of like out of control. Uh, I think that in my experience, when you have enough energy on board and your body is in that, in a, in a healthy physiologic state, things that normally, or if you were in an unhealthy state, normally would trigger you or be offensive or be upsetting or whatever it is, you kind of just like, whatever you just, you're, it just brushes off. It just rolls away. Cause you have the ability, you have the energy to let things go. And I know it sounds weird, but let the process of letting things go or even reframing things is an energy intensive process. So you don't, things cease to be traumas anymore. They're just part, they're just experiences in your life. It, it, the switch just becomes like that. And it's, it's very much physiologic despite the, the, all the talk therapy and whatnot. When, when my parents were going through a divorce, I had to, I was like, had to go to court order therapy and all this stuff. Um, and it, it wasn't helpful for me at all. What was helpful for me was fixing what was going on health wise. I was having a series of gut issues. So I was having, um, and I didn't need to go to a therapist. I had to go. And the, like I was having gut issues. I wasn't feeling well, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then they wanted to talk about all this stuff, all this trauma, et cetera, what it was, this and that. But I don't, I don't think my anxiety and whatnot was triggered by the trauma my anxiety was triggered by how I was feeling. Cause as soon as I organized myself as far as my diet and started to figure things out and started to figure what was bothering me, which was my focus always, that was always my focus. It wasn't, I need to go to therapy and talk all this stuff out. When I went to therapy, the more things that we want that she wanted to talk about, this therapist wanted to talk about the more problems came out because it was, just, it was never ending. It was just never ending. It's like, Oh, you have to fix this. You have to fix that. You have to fix this. And I was like, I, there has to be a better way. So I just, once I um, had my diet situated and I was feeling a lot better, all those things that had been brought up as possible areas of concern, I was just like, whatever, like that's life. That's just how life goes. I'm not going to sit there and try and fix the past. I'm going to learn from my past and move forward. And I didn't need to sit there and talk about it. I don't care. I don't care about any of that stuff. <laughs> I care about moving forward making decisions for myself, but that came once I felt better. And I've seen, I've seen people that I've worked with directly who would be triggered by all these different things. They would have to, they would have to take a bath and do all these accessory. I got to take a bath. I got to do red light. I have to take the supplement. I have to do this just because somebody got angry with them and they got in an argument and completely cripple them. And then on the back end, we fixed diet, we fixed supplements. We got them eating enough. They had enough energy on board. And then rather than doing all this other stuff, it's kind of like, whatever, it's like, okay, whatever you want to do, fine. You know, you want to be angry about this when being about that, whatever, like it didn't cripple them anymore something that they could easily manage and deal with. And I think a lot of that for a lot of that for them came from number one, eliminating foods that were causing irritation. Cause imagine if, if I sat there and I scratched you all day long, 
you would probably be annoyed. You'd probably for 24 hours straight, I'm just scratching you. I'm just, I'm like poking you. I'm doing irritating things to you. When you're eating irritating foods, I, this is a kind of, it's a, not a perfect analogy, but when you're eating irritating foods, it's kind of what's going on in your intestine. It's a 24 hour <laughs> like scratching internally, which is extremely irritating. So eliminate the irritating foods. And the other thing was having enough energy on board. A lot of people that I see like this are coming from low carb, keto, carnivore, et cetera. Their mood is all over the place. They can't sleep. They can't sit down. They can't relax. They have to always do something. They're super busy and they're and like, they're easily triggered. And they have periods where they're going through an intense stimulation and then they're burnout, complete fatigue. And it's cycles like that. And a lot of that is running on stress hormones and then crashing and running on stress hormones and then crashing. And then when you get your diet appropriate and you have enough energy on board, particularly in those situations, carbohydrates, things that were stressful aren't stressful anymore. You can sit down and you can relax and you're just like, okay, you can have situations with this and that. And you're like, okay. And it's just from diet. It's literally just from diet. And it's a, it's a, every time I work with somebody and we see the change, they're amazed by the difference mentally and emotionally. If that was because some people don't have that predisposition to respond in that mental and emotional way. Some, some people will get rashes, they'll get low energy, they'll, their sleep will go bad, and, but mentally and emotionally, they'll be fine. So it really depends on where your predisposition is. And I, and I think that that is also physiologic as well and a, a product of energy metabolism in the brain. Some people will, per, I, perhaps some people prioritize their energy metabolism in the brain over, over other systems. So their mental and emotional isn't affected, but the other systems become affected. And that's, I think, where you see the genetic, genetic predisposition, epigenetic, gen- generational predisposition, et cetera, where they, they will have um, certain areas that are more likely to break down. So for me, it's my, it would be, it would be my gut. I, my gut is extremely sensitive. Is that genetic? I don't know. It's, I have, I have had the surgery, but we all have our predispositions. It's helpful to know what they are because they're indicators, barometers. They let us know how we're doing in different, at different times, what's going on. And you, you pay attention to the symptoms. If you're aware enough, you can start to say, okay, this is what's going on. And, and I think I need to make a change and then try and figure it out. Um, I think that's the best way to go. But yeah, the changes that people can make just with diet and nutrition, I think are absolutely amazing. Um, I've seen them myself. I've done it myself. And as far as like traumas, life experiences, emotional stuff, a lot of that can be processed and managed more effectively when you have the energy to manage it. Yeah, for sure. Um, For me, in my case, it was definitely also gut irritation. And speaking of gut irritation, I want to t- tell you about something in just a moment. Um, but when I was like chronically stressed and I was hypometabolic, like that was kind of like, I don't know, three, four years of being in that stress state all the time and not being able to do the right stuff. And that obviously builds up. So then the recovery obviously takes longer. So then diet helped a lot, but then adding in certain supplements like uh, aspirin, high doses, aspirin, gibberellin, magnesium, those kind of stuff also helped a lot to kind of calm the stress response so my body can actually utilize the carbohydrates effectively. Because I also find that some people that are like hyper stressed and hyper reactive to stress, they don't always, um, you can give them a lot of carbs and you can just like overfeed them. They're going to get really fat because they're overeating so much on those carbohydrates that doesn't really do the strong enough job that it needs to do. And then you can like have to give them some supplements that the, the stress system can calm down so the body can actually utilize the carbohydrates effectively. But yeah, carbohydrates are a great thing to add in there to kind of like uh, calm the stress response, but it's not always enough that I found. Um, but uh, yeah, talking about gut irritation, I bought a freaking Tabasco sauce with scorpion chili peppers, man. Have you ever had like a... <laughs> 
<laughs> I, I have not. Crazy. What's the hottest chili pepper you ate? See, I don't know. It's I don't think I like spicy that much. Like Frank's Red Hot or Tabasco, like the originals, they're not like super spicy to me. They're like they have the vinegar taste. I think that I, I think for me, I like the vinegar taste. And then I like having just a little bit of that pepper taste, the spicy pepper taste. But I don't like feeling spiciness like it, and that that'll wreck my gut. Cause on the, so like I won't eat Chipotle because some of the Chipotle stuff is way too spicy for me and I won't feel it initially, but when I have a bowel movement, I'll feel it. And so I kind of stay away. Like it, it'll irritate me. So for me, I think it's more of the vinegar and like a little bit of the peppery taste and less so the actual like spiciness of it. So you're more like a sweet pepper paprika kind of guy. Uh, not even pep- not even paprika for me honestly my favorite seasonings the two well they kind of go together i think the best seasoning in the world is butter and salt <laughs> i could put butter and salt in anything and i'll be pretty happy uh, i put it on pretty much most of my foods or some type of fat even if it was olive oil like for me i crave the fattiness and and then i like salt and obviously i like sweet a lot but i'm not going to put butter in my juice <laughs> Yeah, I I don't know why I or a lot of people have this tendency to go hotter, hotter, hotter. You know, you you have this obsession with just go hotter. And so I start, obviously started with a normal Tabasco. Then we get the green Tabasco. That one's pretty good, but it doesn't burn that much. But I just like the taste a lot. Then you get the habanero, which is pretty intense. I thought that was kind of like the, the strongest that you can get. And now I found the freaking scorpion pepper, which is so strong, man. It's so strong. You add a little bit. It's like burning. I think I got some gut irritation from that ring sting for sure. Um, it, it, was, <laughs> it was pretty I've bad. I've never heard that before, but I, I get what I just got what you were saying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was it. So I feel like I, it's definitely something that I'm going to eat on an every single day basis, maybe like once a week, maybe <laughs> twice a month or something like that. But yeah, it's pretty nice. I like that chili. I like that burn. Like it's so hot that you just look at the bottle and you start sweating already. You get the sweaty palms before you even eat the, the chili pepper. That's how hot it is. The, the anticipation stress. Anyways. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't think I wouldn't even, to be honest, I probably wouldn't even try it. I know it would bother me. Like the other night I made, I made my fiance some tacos and I made the meat with like a garlic powder. And um, what type of pepper was it? I used some type of pepper. So like I made the meat and then I use like organic strained tomatoes. I'm, I make some fire tacos. I'm not going to lie. Like my tacos <laughs> are pretty good. Um, so I made her the tacos and there's like some meat left over and she didn't want it. And it was pretty, it was pretty tasty. So I was like eating the meat, but I don't do well with a lot of spices. I always tell her, I have like, I have a, I have a white man gut. Like I can't handle <laughs> all the spices. They don't sit well with me. They irritate me. So, uh, cause she's a, uh, she's Puerto Rican. So they're, they eat. They have a lot of spices in their food. Um, and so like some of the cooking, I just don't handle well. So I told her, so I ate that and I was like, I did not feel good the next day. Like I was getting like rashes and whatnot. So yeah, I kind of stay away from sp- spices. I'll stick with my butter and my salt. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. It's definitely not, uh, um, what's the right word for this? Like absolutely necessary to add the chili for the taste. Like it's not that I'm so addicted to it, but it's nice to have it every once in a while. All right, man, we've been writing so much. I guess you have a good study for us. Yep. I have, I have one that's actually well known, I think inside the bioenergetic sphere, but I keep having clients and people questioning the, like not questioning, but kind of like not understanding the difference between sugar 
and and juices and they're because i think in the mainstream media a lot of people equate oh sugar and juice because there's so many articles that are out there it's like oh drinking a glass of juice is like drinking a soda and that is a hundred percent not the case not even close and the way i try to the way i explain it to people is drinking like comparing juice to soda is like comparing like a motorcycle to a watermelon like they are entirely different things this is why i drink this man it has 30 percent fruit juice in it (laughs) oh wow (laughs) <laughs> are the ingredients good well it's pretty good i don't um it's not perfect but i think it's pretty good it's got obviously like artificial sweetener in it as well which is i think it's not the worst oh, thing i don't think it's that bad um but some people are quite you know don't like it as much but I, I think it's fine it's got some uh the blend specifically is apple orange peach tangerine pineapple and white grape it tastes a little bit like fanta and um, i wanted to get another one but I didn't have it in stock um, but it contains like Panix, Jensen, Taurine, B vitamins, um, Inesitol, like a few good things. Um, I-, I like it for energy and stuff. I like some of the stuff that they add. Because like even in Red Bull, like the form of B3 is niacinamide. I'm pretty sure it's not niacin. And I obviously, I think they did that so people aren't like flushing, like you're drinking Red Bull and everybody's <laughs> like all red. Flushed <laughs> yeah. out from the niacin flush. Um I like I like some I like a lot of the ingredients. I just wish that they didn't add some of the other agents on the back end, right? And like in Monster, like a lot of those are like low cal like low sugar. It's like so they like okay, put fruit juice in it, but then it's like you have to they're adding sucralose or whatever else because there's no because they don't want to have too much sugar content because everybody's anti-sugar, but or at least in that crowd, right? Because I think that the marketing there is perhaps to like athletes or like to uh um to like people who are working out, like the whole gym culture has like does a lot of those drinks. Uh, Either way, I think that, you know, I'm sure there's better recipes. Like, well, so on top of our, uh, our shitty eggs uh, (laughs) business, what was the other one we were going to do? So we had shitty eggs, bus cutters, but bus cutters, man. Oh, okay. So we're going to open a barber shop. We're also going to make our own energy drinks soon. Just to stay tuned guys. (laughs) With some Um, raw yolks in it for sure. Yeah, raw egg yolks because that's FDA or or whatever <laughs> the USDA approved. Um, but yeah, so the uh, so I have a lot of people that are kind of I think confused about or not confused, but don't fully understand that the difference between fruits and like granulated sugar is massive. Like there's a there's a massive massive difference in the compounds in fruits. And the effects of those compounds, not to mention the, the vitamins and minerals, for example, with orange juice, have a very potent effect on physiology that you're not going to see with a Coke, that you're not going to see with granulated sugar, that you're not going to see with these other foods. And I think that this is part of the reason why when people come to a bioenergetic approach and they start increasing their sugar consumption, that they start to feel that they start to gain weight because it's like the door opens for all carbs. And that's, I don't even think like, I don't know, Pete has mentioned granulated sugar, but there is also mention of, and I, it doesn't even have to be based off of Pete, even on my own experience. I've had people who've been able to do hundreds of grams of carbs from fruit and sugar and not gain weight. Whereas if they switch over to having large amounts of, or from fruit and uh, juice, excuse me, not sugar, when they switch over to larger amounts of granulated sugar, uh, whether that's from refined products or that's just from pure granulated sugar, they wind up having issues. And I think that that's related to a lack of the protective compounds in, in the fruits and the juices or dried fruit or frozen fruit or whole, whatever it is, whichever form of fruit you're choosing, 
versus the granulated sugar. So the study that I'm going to go over today is comparing the effects of glucose, water, and orange juice on a high fat, high carbohydrate meal, which is a study that I, I think you and I have mentioned before. I've mentioned in other areas and other, other podcasts I've done. And, and the study I think is even on the forum. Uh, I, I don't know if, if Georgie had posted it at one point. I don't, I don't know. Um, this is, it's just an older study, but it's, I want to go over it because I want to bring all of this into light. So the study says orange juice neutralizes the pro-inflammatory effect of a high-fat, high-carbohydrate meal and prevents endotoxin increase and toll-like receptor expression. So endotoxin are the toxins that we've always discussed about coming from the gut, from bacteria. Um, there's other toxins besides endotoxin, but endotoxin is one of the most potent and main ones that we discuss or, or that is often discussed in the literature. And that tends to come from gram-negative bacteria. Gram-positive bacteria do also produce toxins like uh lipotechoic acid, which is produced, I think, by, uh, by staphylococcus. Um, but either way, there's a series of toxins, but this is kind of showing endotoxin, I guess we can use as a proxy, is showing that orange juice in, kind of inhibits the endotoxin. And then also toll-like receptor are the receptors by immune cells or expressed by immune cells that are able to pick up endotoxin or different toxins from the gut or also tissue damage or viral infections, et cetera. And orange juice kind of minimizes that process on top of minimizing inflammation. So it starts off here is that uh, these researchers say that we previously showed that the intake of 75 grams uh, of glucose induced an acute increase in reactive oxygen species generation and inflammation as, ref as reflected in an increase in nuclear transcription factor kappa beta binding. So NFK NFKB is like a primary uh, signaling factor for the for inflammation pathways um and so taking glucose increased this in, in this previous study and they say there's a decrease in the expression of nfkb and an increase in inhibitory um kappa beta kinases and peripheral blood mononuclear cells so the mononuclear cells are, are the white blood cells they call them mononuclear because they have one nucleus um and then they say here the increase in nuclear factor kappa beta binding is associated with an increase in tumor necrosis factor alpha and a series of other inflammatory factors. Um, so one of them is the matrix metalloproteinases, um, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a whole list of them. They're going to talk about them later in the study. They're framing basically here that the glucose drink increased um, these inflammatory factors. And they say in terms of oxidative and inflammatory stress, a similar response follows the intake of a high fat, high carbohydrate meal. We'll talk about what that meal is down low. Then what they're saying is in contrast, the intake of orange juice containing sucrose, glucose, and fructose for 75 grams of sugar does not cause an increase in reactive oxygen species generation or nuclear factor kappa beta binding. So while glucose did, orange juice did not, and they were matched for total sugar content and it, the, the orange juice had sucrose, glucose, and fructose. And generally fructose from the research perspective or from a lot of the mainstream perspective is seen as like evil. So, so they've kind of meant make mention here. In addition, hesperitin, naringenin, which are two major flavonoids. Dr. Peters talked about naringenin very specifically, but also hesperitin. They're contained in orange juice, um, but not the exorbic acid, which is vitamin C, are able to suppress reactive oxygen species generation by mononuclear cells in vitro by greater than 50%. So the flavonoids, or um, I think they're polyphenols, hesperitin and naringenin, 
or their flavonoids here are able to strongly decrease inflammatory signaling. Um, then they come down here and there's a little blurb about TLR4. So toll-like receptor 4 was also shown to play an important role in the pathogenesis of atherosclerosis, diet-induced obesity, and related insulin resistance, whereas toll-like receptor 2 is shown to be involved in ischemia reperfusion-induced myocardial injury. So essentially, um, heart attacks. So when you, from ischemia reperfusion is when there's ischemia. So lack of blood supply and oxygen to the tissue leads to when you reperfuse that tissue, the tissue express, expresses injury. So the tissue becomes damaged. So toll-like receptor four and two are involved in these processes. Um, they say in a recent study, we showed that there was a significant increase in plasma concentration of endotoxin and an increase in toll-like receptor 4 and toll-like receptor 2 expression in mononuclear cells after the intake of a high-fat, high-carbohydrate meal. So after eating this, this particular meal, um, that we'll talk about it later down in the study, there's an increase in the white blood cells, which are the immune cells, of toll-like receptor 4 and toll-like receptor 2, and then also increased concentrations of endotoxin in the plasma. So we're having an upregulation of inflammation and immune signaling after this high-fat, high-carbohydrate meal, which up here could based on they're, they're setting the tone for the study um, with orange juice, this may not happen because of the flavonoids they mentioned too, but I'm sure there's more factors, hesperitin and arginine. So what they come here and they start talking about more inflammatory signals. I'm just going to read this quickly because it sets the tone for some of the ones we're going to talk down below. In our recent study, we also showed that a high fat, high carbohydrate meal induced an increase in the expression of the suppressor cytokine signaling three, a key protein responsible for interference with insulin's signal transduction by causing the, the degradation of insulin receptor substrate one. SO, SOCS3 is induced by pro-inflammatory cytokines, tumor necrosis factor alpha, interleukin beta, interleukin or IL-6, which is interleukin-6. Pro-inflammatory meals may contribute to the pathogenesis of insulin resistance. So what they're saying is the high fat, high carbohydrate meal upregulates uh, SOCS3, which can cause insulin resistance. Uh, and it does so, uh, it, it is induced by these other cytokines, tumor necrosis factor alpha, interleukin beta, and interleukin 6. And interleukin beta, interleukin 6, and tumor necrosis factor alpha can all be stimulated by endotoxin. Tumor necrosis factor alpha actually specifically increases cholesterol in the bloodstream um, by triggering its production at the liver in response to endotoxin. I've talked about this process before. So it also is, can cause insulin resistance. So what we're seeing here is, and we'll see this down here in the grass. I'm not going to go too deep because we're starting to get really technical with some of these different terms and, and cytokines, et cetera. But essentially the process that you need to understand in your mind is endotoxin and inflammatory compounds from the food come in at the gut and then they trigger the cytokine release. There's a litany of cytokines. Some are inflammatory, some are not are anti-inflammatory. And then those cytokines trigger different processes throughout the body. Some of them can include insulin resistance. Some of them can include high cholesterol, high triglycerides, uh, issues at the liver, heart disease, et cetera. So essentially what we're trying to look at here is how do we minimize this process? And what we're going to see here is orange juice is one of the better strategies and it significantly outperforms glucose. 
Uh, and we're going to see the effects on insulin signaling here. And the reason this is why they brought up the SOCS3. So we come down here. I want to discuss the subjects so you guys know exactly what they did. There's three groups of 10 healthy, normal weight men and women. So they have their BMIs uh, between 20 to 25 and their age range was from 20 to 40 years old. So we have normal weight, healthy people that are between 20 and 40. So adults, norm, uh, normal age adults or average age adults. And they were recruited for the study. All subjects presented um, for the investigation after an overnight fast. Uh, it was in New York. Now the subjects were in the three groups ingested a 300 kilocalorie drink of 75 grams of glucose, pure glucose, uh, 75 grams of uh, carbohydrates from orange juice, which we did, we discussed or water along. So it was water, orange juice, or glucose. And then they had a high fat, high carbohydrate meal. That was an egg muffin and sausage and sausage muffin sandwiches and two hash brown potatoes that contained 81 grams of carbohydrates, 51 grams of fat, and 32 grams of protein. Now in the peat sphere, everyone's going to talk about PUFA, et cetera, whatever. We don't know. I'm sure this was this meal contained a decent amount of PUFA just by the hash browns, because if you look at any hash browns inside the United States, they are cooked with vegetable oil. I doubt that they made um, fresh hash browns for them with coconut oil or butter or whatever it is. Hash and browns are so good, man. <clears throat> They are good if they're prepared, right? Right. Hash <laughs> browns cooked in beef tallow. Yeah. So if you had it like egg muffin or sausage muffin, I don't know what the ingredients were there. The real thing that they're, everybody got the same meal though. So the focus is really going to be what's the difference between glucose, orange juice, and water. And so this, the rest of this all here is just talking about the different techniques they use to measure the inflammatory cytokines, et cetera. Um, want something interesting, not really, not really help doesn't really change anything here for us as they did measure the endotoxin concentration and the orange juice, the water and the glucose drink, which was, you know, interesting, but it doesn't really tell us much because it was very minimal. So the first thing I want to talk about here and the graphs is really where we're going to, we're going to see the interesting points, the, the, some of the rest, the words get very technical as far as the different um, cytokine signaling, et cetera. And it's not extremely helpful. So we're really going to be looking at the graphs. So the first one here is plasma glucose concentrations. So this is hours after the meal. Obviously, zero is when they ate. We have the water meal. Um, and then we have the, so the water meal is this circle right here, kind of like the meal peaked up. Obviously, we're having hash browns and whatnot. So uh, plasma glucose increased a little bit. We have the, um, I forget what it's called. I'll, uh, it's the range, the standard deviation. There we go. Uh, after that, we have the glucose meal, which peaked even higher, dropped down and then came and then stayed at a lower baseline. And then we have the orange juice meal, which is this black triangle. And this one's going to be the most interesting. So our plasma glucose concentration with the orange juice didn't actually massively peak in these individuals. It kind of stayed consistent, which is quite interesting, quite interesting. And it, I, I think it plays into the SOCS3 that we discussed above. But you can see the water peaked a little bit, probably from the hash browns and the sandwich sandwich bread. Glucose peaked a ton and then came back down and stayed below baseline. And orange juice kind of stayed pretty much baseline the whole time. We didn't have a drastic increase in blood sugar. Well, next thing we get to is plasma insulin concentrations. 
water didn't insulin concentration didn't increase that much because it didn't have as much carbohydrate, right? They didn't add an extra 75 grams. Orange juice insulin concentration increased what you would expect from 75 grams plus however many grams were in the, the sandwiches, but the uh, glucose meal actually increased the most. Now, when we're looking at this and we're looking at the glucose handling and we're looking at also the plasma insulin concentrations and taking into consideration the SOCS3, which was that insulin signaling mediator, when you get down low, we're going to see that orange juice inhibited in any, there wasn't really any inflammatory cytokines productions from the orange juice. And then if we take the inflammatory cytokines can induce a degree of insulin resistance from the high fat, high carbohydrate meal. When you're having this juice here, what you're seeing is that the orange juice was able to increase insulin concentrations, but the blood sugar stayed the same. So you would assume from that perspective, that insulin signaling or insulin sensitivity was actually increased by the cells of the body because they were able to take this carbohydrate load with less insulin and still not have a high amount of blood sugar, which is quite an interesting, um, quite an interesting outcome from the orange juice alone. Now, this was 10 subjects. I know it's only 10 subjects, but still, that's quite an interesting response. We have an insulin increase, not as high as the glucose and blood sugar remains relatively relatively consistent. Quite an interesting response. Um, this is, again, this is talking about the effects uh, of the in the different areas. Now we're going to talk about effective meal and drink combination of ROS generation. Let me see if I, the graph is a little bit lower here. So here's the change in ROS generation by the mononuclear cells. Those mononuclear cells are your, your white blood cells, the immune cells. What we're seeing is the water meal initially, about an hour after, we had an increase in ROS, um, and then we came back down. And something to keep in mind here is that ROS can be increased by energy generation as well, but this is particularly by mononuclear cells, so immune cells. Uh, after that, we have the glucose meal, the which is the white triangle. If we look at that, it actually was higher than the orange juice meal the entire time and actually stayed higher at the end. Whereas if we get over here to the orange juice meal, we didn't peak very high like the water meal did. We got a little bit higher at the three hour point than the water meal, but it came back down to baseline at five hours. So overall ROS generation was significantly lower with the orange juice meal than it was with both the water meal and the, the glucose meal. I would have liked to see if they used potato instead of glucose. Because like glucose is just refined, whereas like a potato would have like minerals and other stuff in it that might have like maybe had the same effect as the OJ. I'm, I'm sure it would have been similar as long as the microbiome, their microbiome handled the potato. Because again, that's and that's my whole point here. And this is the point for the whole foods from the study. If you're eating potato or you're eating, you're having juice or you're having fruit or you're having yams and you tolerate those foods well, because you're, you're getting those foods with vitamins, with minerals, and particularly with the different polyphenolic compounds, potatoes have polyphenolic compounds, particularly if you're going to have like purple potatoes or something like that, very high in poly, polyphenolic compounds or the flavonoids, these, these plant compounds, they're going to inhibit some of these negative effects that you're getting from the gut. They directly inhibit those processes. They can minimize endotoxin. The, the purple anthocyanins that you see in purple sweet potatoes or in purple potatoes inhibit endotoxin production in the gut and inflammatory signaling. They've taken extracts just of those compounds and given them to mice and just the extract itself has inhibited those processes. 
So I think that it's ex they're extremely protective. And I would always prioritize those foods over refined sugar, hands down. And now it's not that I'm anti-refined sugar. It's that I think refined sugar is significantly less valuable than whole fruit, fruit juice, potatoes, and yams if you tolerate those. I think if, if it's refined sugar or nothing and you just have like a cane sugar soda and you haven't eaten in whatever I for a long period of time, if you're in the airport, whatever it is, I think that that's helpful. But I think if you have the opportunity to have orange juice or some other juice that doesn't have crappy ingredients in it over a cane sugar soda, I think that that would be my preference, especially if you tolerate that. So this is what we're, this is where we're getting here. Just basically our ROS generation. And we can see here from the OJ meal is um, significantly lower in these graphs than we're seeing with the water or we're seeing with the glucose meal. So this is again, ROS is lower. Blood sugar handling is massively improved. Insulin concentrations are lower on the Google's, but between these two graphs, we're seeing improved blood sugar handling from the orange juice meal. We're seeing decreased ROS generation from the orange juice. When we come over here, um, this is talking about different protein markers of uh, different inflammatory compounds. The ones I really wanted to look at were over here is the TLR4 and TLR2. This is, this one's actually quite astounding. So we have the glucose meal TLR. This is the TLR2 mRNA expression. So the expression of, so mRNA comes from the nucleus of the cell and goes to the ribosomes in the cell, generally, and I think in the endoplasm around the esnoplasmic reticulum and produces the protein. So they can actually measure the mRNA inside the cell. And we're seeing the mRNA for TLR2 right here. That, so we're seeing the, the cell, how is it responding to these different meals, uh, the mononuclear cells? These are immune cells. And what you're seeing is with the water meal, it, we at, or the water meal, we're kind of, you know, in, the, in between. We have a little bit of a jump up. With the glucose meal, we have a massive increase in signaling of TLR2. But with the OJ, the orange juice, flat. We literally have almost nothing. The TLR2 mRNA expression isn't being increased. Now let's come down to TLR4, which is, this is the endotoxin receptor. TLR2 signals other things, tissue damage, perhaps virus, maybe it's viral infection, whatever it is. The, the way to explain the toll-like receptors is they are receptors on immune cells that pick up different things that are indicating damage or infection in the body. So they can pick up viral proteins. They can pick up bacterial compounds like lipopolysaccharide. They can pick up damaged tissue. So if you have like different components of the cell leaking out, the immune cells will pick that up. And then they are going like, oh, we got to clean this stuff up. So it's basically like a sensor. It's sensing the different things. And there's, I think, up to TLR11, toll-like receptor 11. I think 11 is the last one. Yeah, I think so. Um, but they all, they, all, they all sense different things. You can think of it just like sensors. Um, and around damage and inflammation and infection is what they're looking for. So when we get over here to TLR4, what we're seeing, we have the, again, water meal kind of in the middle. Um, and that they still, the water meal still has other compounds in there, right? Because they had the egg sausage sandwich and then hash browns. When we come over here, we have the glucose meal. And then we look over here. We actually have a slight dip in TLR4 mRNA expression with the OJ meal, and then it comes back to baseline. So again, the OJ is having a protective effect against this TLR4 um, uh, mRNA expression, 
Now we're going to see the actual protein content. So what we have over here is change percent change in TLR2 protein. So that's after that mRNA has reached the ribosome and the ribosome has translated that mRNA into a protein. Um, and that, I'm not going to describe that whole process, but it's kind of like, well, I guess I'll kind of describe it. The mRNA has base pairs. Um, there's like guanosine, cytosine, uh, I think the T, thymid, uh, I forget what it is, thymidine. I think that's what it is. It gets replaced with uh, a U. And then the, th the different base pairs signal a, um, they signal amino acids. So I think three base pairs signal amino acids, each of amino acids and that amino acid get, they get linked together and then you get a protein. So here we have the protein for TLR2. Um, again, black triangle, orange juice. If we look down here, still bit on the bottom, still doing great. Uh, and then we come over here and we have TLR4 again, flatlined. No, no significant change. Whereas the glucose meal and the water meal have those increases in change. So this is, you know, what we're seeing is a decrease in these inflammatory signaling. Then when we come over here, we have the uh, SOCS3 protein change. And again, we have some, uh, we have some changes like it, we have an increase, but again, the OJ meals is not increased like the, even the water meal. It's, and it's significantly lower than the glucose meal, which is quite interesting. Uh, and I think that parallels with the fact that of what we saw above, where we saw that the blood glucose concentrations didn't spike heavily with the OJ and, and the insulin concentration, we did have a rise in insulin, obviously, because we're taking carbohydrates, but I think it's showing Im improved insulin sensitivity overall with the orange juice meal. Next, when we come to is change in endotoxin concentration. Um, we see that the orange juice endotoxin concentration barely increased. Whereas with the water meal, we had increased endotoxin concentration. And with the glucose, we had even more increased plasma. So this is endotoxin in the plasma in the blood. So the, overall, we're seeing a protective effect of orange juice on increased endotoxin in the blood, which is great, which is great. And I don't even know if this is high quality orange juice. We can look up above and see what the brand is, but I doubt it's super high quality orange juice that they're giving out for free for these participants in their study. Well, they did mention it's not from concentrate, if that means anything. Well, that's pretty good. Let's see. We have it up here. Um, not from concentrate, Florida orange juice from the Florida Department of Citrus, Lakeland, Florida. Okay. So not from, so we have some, we have seemingly decent orange juice. So yeah, that's pretty much the study. We're showing that orange juice in the meal has produces less plasma endotoxin than a glucose or a water with the meal. And it produces uh, less TLR4, less TLR2. We have improved insulin sensitivity and we have um, de decreased overall SOCS3, which is a marker that can, which if it's upregulated can cause insulin resistance. So, and that's just from orange juice. I mean, we don't need metformin. We just need, everybody just needs to have eight ounces of orange juice. If you take your eight ounces of orange juice and you mix it with eight ounces of pomegranate juice, which is what I just did for my meal prior to our podcast. Now you have, um, you're decreasing your, you could, you're possibly decreasing your carotid plaque as we talked about in that pomegranate study. And you're also increasing your insulin sensitivity with your orange juice and you're decreasing endotoxin and you're decreasing TLR4 and TLR2. 
what else what else could you want from there maybe have some whole fruit in there maybe some mulberries or goji berries or or guava and we'll maybe i'll dig into some of those fruits um and another in our next podcast or so we'll see but don't yeah. forget about your eight ounces of egg whites <laughs> for the testosterone <laughs> for your testosterone yeah so you're gonna make an egg white egg white pomegranate orange juice smoothie <laughs> yeah, maybe some ghost pepper in there too <laughs> yeah yeah no not the spicy ones that those are a little intense but um i wanted to mention like um, specifically to the egg whites there is like a peptide in it that also inhibit ice i think there's like an, uh milk proteins oyster I think in even an organ meat and even in muscle meat, it contains some of peptides that inhibit ACE. So that's pretty good because I want to talk about, this is going to be a video. I don't, I'm not sure if I'm going to talk about this in a podcast this time or next time, but it's basically about how good norenginin is as well. So inhibiting ACE and with some of these things that I mentioned. So during COVID, we had the spike in, uh, you know, it, uh, vascular problems, erectile dysfunction, or at least that um, vascular specific erectile dysfunction, because it's, uh, agonizes the ACE. So you have an increase in angiotensin 2, but you have a decrease in the angiotensin 1 to 7, which is the anti-inflammatory vasodilatory angiotensin. Um, so naringenin is very good. Um, you know, these ACE inhibitors from natural foods are very good. Naringenin is, um, prevents oxidative stress in the testes, in the vascular system. It increases the bioavailability of nitric oxide because the reactive oxygen species bind to the nitric oxide, creating highly reactive peroxynitrite, which is very harmful, much more so than other reactive oxygen species. Um, so it protects the, the nitric oxide. It uh, recouples uh, endothelial nitric oxide synthesis. It's very good for erectile dysfunction. Um, so norenginin is awesome. I haven't seen any specific studies on OJ for erectile dysfunction, but I just know norenginin is pretty cool. I'd like to use that maybe one time in the future on its own, just to like see how it works. Um, but uh in terms of your study, that, that was a very good study. I don't, it, um, I would like to drink more OJ, but the thing is like the oranges quality is quite questionable you know, because they store it for so long. And then it, I'm kind of like demotivated to make it. It doesn't even taste that good. And it's like, ah, well, I'd rather have my own trees one day and just, you know, harvest at least what I know is going to be awesome quality. Yeah. Here in the U S we have, there's a lot of options for orange. There's like, especially in Florida, right? Uh, you could go to the grocery store and there's like 50 different brands of orange juice, but there's a brand here in the United States. It's super expensive, but their oranges are ripe. And uh, like the juice is super sweet. Like it's extremely sweet. Even their grapefruit juice is sweet. Like I like their grapefruit juice and other grapefruit juice. I'm like, this is disgusting. Like it's just sour. There's no sweetness in it at all. Um, it, but it's the brand is uncle Matt's here. And if you ever come visit us over here in the United States, Hans, I will buy you uncle Matt's for your entire <laughs> stay. I promise. <laughs> That's awesome. So, yeah. So it's, it's, uh, we have some good quality ones here, but there's, there's other juices, you know, you, that you could try. Maybe they have something more like some fruits there that are more local to, to South Africa. And for other people too, if you don't have access to orange juice, there's grape juice, there's pineapple juice. There's grapefruit juice, which is probably if you orange juice is bad, it's probably going to be bad. Um, and then, oh, there's pomegranate juice. So you can do, you know, you could get some grape juice and then you can mix it with pomegranate juice. And you can go half and half because pomegranate juice is kind of strong. Like drinking it straight. I tell people it's like it's like Drano. It's like pipe cleaner. If you're not used to it and you haven't had it to start and you go for a like a solid 
16 ounces of just straight pomegranate juice, you will clean yourself out. And I did that to myself the first time. I was like, whoa. <laughs> but after that, my body has my body's used to it. Now I mix it. So it's a lot better. But yeah. Yeah, I'd like to get more quality juices, but it's relatively expensive. And the, the, the quality of the food here in SI tends to be a little bit questionable. Like we bought a lettuce once because we were making like lettuce wraps with beef and stuff. And we didn't finish the, the whole lettuce. It was kind of like a little bit of lettuce still in the refrigerator. And it was like three, four months later, it was still perfectly fine. It's like, okay, you know, this stuff is so questionable. Like I'm never eating lettuce again unless I make it myself. Um, and now we have like a grapefruit that we didn't use. Sorry, what was that? It's like Wonder Bread, like Wonder Lettuce. Like Wonder Bread never goes bad. <laughs> yeah. So we, we have a grapefruit uh, that we never used. And or we have it like for, I don't know, four months. And it's still like perfectly fine. Like we just pluck it from the tree yesterday. It's like, it's not like in the refrigerator, just sitting there on the counter. I don't, know, I don't know if that's normal or if that's highly questionable, but I think it's questionable. Yeah, no, I think it, the stuff would go bad. I mean, we pray, we pay a lot of money for food here. Like that is, I think... It's almost on par with rent sometimes, but just because like, that's the priority we prioritize our food. So yeah. And especially, um, surprisingly here in Texas, like we, the meat hasn't been like, there's a lot of meat, but not like the quality isn't always ideal. So like, we've actually like, there are, like, I can get some really good grass fed meat, like a hundred percent grass fed grass finished ground meat. Um, but as far as steaks and stuff go, well, that's always super expensive. The like grass fed steaks. So ground meat is always way cheaper. Um, but the, uh, we've had to like order meat from an online supplier just because like in the grocery stores where I'm at, it's hard to find like, like not extremely like the steaks here. Some of the, like the grass fed steaks here are like 20 something dollars and it's not even a pound. So it'll be like $23 and it's like, it's like 12 ounces of meat. It's like, that's ridiculous. And it's not even, it's not, you're not even getting like filet mignon. <laughs> so yeah, it's just, I don't know. I think Jay, Jay is in, was in Costa Rica and he was telling me he's getting like a hundred percent grass fed steaks for like six bucks or less, or like some ridiculous, some ridiculously cheap price for like filet mignon that was grass fed. I was like, yeah, that's not <laughs> happening over here. <laughs> that's impossible over here. <laughs> yeah that's the same thing like i also order our meat from online because if you go to the store it's like it's not a real deal it's like highly it's not even like red almost anymore and i know in america they add like uh, colorants to it to make it more red and then you have it like mixed with soy and pork and i don't know what else but the thing is it tastes completely different it has a different texture compared to the stuff that we order online so i'm not gonna take any chances with the stuff you, you buy in the store i'm just gonna order it you know like they, they slaughter the cow they make the mince and they ship it to you and it's kind of like fresh good quality right away yeah yeah there's a and here if you're in the u.s there's two places we order from u.s wellness meats and then another one is wild fork and their their meat quality is amazing like the lamb that i've gone from these places is like sometimes we literally just buy lamb like we literally just buy different cuts of lamb because it's so good and then like it's super fatty so then we'll save the fat um, but yeah, it's the, the food here, like the, the food from those places is excellent, but in the grocery stores, we do have like the one thing that's great about the U S is that there's so there's variety. So there's a Walmart, there's United supermarkets. There's, um, there's like, there's probably like just in this city that we're at Amarillo, which isn't really a huge city. There's like, has to be like 10 or like maybe 10 to 20 different grocery stores. 
and they have like they all have their different spins and you have the big box stores right like walmart and and whatnot but we also have then you have like these little boutique there's like little boutique stores and then there's there's a uh, stores that cater to the hispanic community and then there's also like natural there's a natural grocery stores here that are that have like you know, quality products or hard to find products, all organic, all that types of stuff. There's a lot of that plant-based garbage in there. Like plant-based on everything now is ridiculous, even on like the worst food possible plant-based. But, um, but yeah, there's the one thing about here is variety and, and access to things, which I, but it, but it's expensive. So if you want the stuff that you want, you're going to pay for it, but there, the option to get it is available. And I think that's, the big benefit, even with supplements, like a, a lot of my clients that I'm working with, like we're, that's something that we're looking into is like trying to figure out how to set up some type of supply of supplements to Europe because the, the supplement options in Europe for a lot of things are so limited and in South America too. And then also, um, where else? I think it was in Israel. It was hard to find like good subs. I don't know how it is in South Africa, but the supplements overall are just like, <laughs> Yeah, I think we have a lot of options here, but we don't have much problems ordering from like iHerb or Amazon. Um, it's just kind of like, again, you you pay about like, I think 50% tax, which can be a limiting factor from ordering too frequently. Um, but other than that, I think we can get most things, even like the chemicals from Idea Labs, it's never really been a problem because it's like just an envelope shipped right through. It's not a big deal. You're not going to be distributing steroids or anything weird like that. Um, but yeah, you're talking about like plant-based. And so technically... You know, animals, they eat plants, they, they are plant-based, right? We eat cattle. <laughs> and as, as the comedian once said, it's like you, you don't get atherosclerosis from eating beef because like atherosclerosis is absolutely unheard of amongst beef and they are technically made of beef, right? They're 100% beef. <laughs> or like, what did he say? I think he said like cattle is 100% beef and they don't get atherosclerosis. That was hilarious. <laughs> well, I think you brought up a good point, like, like if you're eating beef, it's technically plant-based because the beef eat grass. The yeah, exactly. cows eat grass. There you go. So we're we're all plant-based, Hans. Yeah. Yeah. Bam. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Whipping out the guns. Yeah, man. All right. Let me talking about like gut problems. I actually had an interesting study that I wanted to talk about. Uh, it was gut feelings and whatnot. Uh, but it was too long. I didn't get uh, through it in time. So that's gonna be for next next show but um this one was interesting looking at dhea sulfate abolishes visceral allodemia which is like this hypersensitivity pain to pain and colonic hyperpermeability induced by endotoxin in a dose dependent manner it was blocked by repeated was what was that again water avoidance stress or peripheral injections of crf induced visceral changes these effects by dhea sulfate in endotoxin model reversed by a GABA antagonist and nitric oxide inhibitor and naloxone, which is an opiate receptor antagonist or a dopamine, a dopamine receptor antagonist. So they basically say that peripheral injection of a stress in B2, which inhibits a selective CRF, uh, CRF receptor 2 antagonist also reverses these effects. So one of the main reasons why DHA sulfate is so good for the gut and blocks the effects of endotoxin is because it uh, stops the whole stress cascade right in the hypothalamus. But it also shows that it um, works on the GABA receptor, which is interesting. And I think it seems to work through nitric oxide, as they say, maybe even opioid um, and the dopamine system. But just as a side note, many of these drugs um, don't just 
work through one mechanism. So because they say here that, however, domperidone, uh, peripheral dopamine D2 receptor antagonist, did not modify these effects, but um, sulpiride, a dopamine receptor, anta uh, receptor antagonist, did. So two kinds of dopamine receptor antagonists had different effects on the effects of DHA. So just because they say, oh, it worked to nitric oxide or opioid or dopamine doesn't necessarily mean it's through that mechanism because these drugs have other effects as well. But it was just interesting looking at DHSulfate, how good it is from the gut, stopping the stress uh, cascade all the way from the hypothalamus, which I think is pretty cool. So um, yeah, I've just been playing, you know, a lot of, not a lot, 10 milligrams of DHSulfate, uh, DHEA topically before training. And I think that's really helped with just muscle hardness, you know, in a deficit, because if you deficit, you don't have a lot of energy available for steroidogenesis. So then directly making DHEA available for the synthesis of 5-alpha-reduced steroids like androsterone or androstanadiol, you know, those kind of stuff, um, can then potentiate insulin sensitivity, uh, muscle regeneration, reco recover maintenance, um, even hypertrophy. Uh, in the long run. So, you know, this is kind of like a good maintenance strategy while you're doing something stressful, like a small deficit or something like that. And then it's good for if the you, gut as well. If you look below too, it says Losartan improves visceral sensation and gut barrier in a rat model for irritable bowel syndrome, which is quite interesting. Losartan is an angiotensin receptor blocker. Oh yeah, yeah, I did see that one. Yeah. That's and then cool. I talked about that rock. So, but Losartan is pretty cool. Um, also helpful for ED, uh, going back to the angiotensin stuff. <laughs> Yeah. I, uh, I, I actually, so I know there was also a study. So a couple, there's a couple points I want to make. There was a study that somebody posted on the forum about DHT in the gut. Um, I don't know. I, I think you may have even commented on the thread at one point. I, I'm not hundred percent sure, but uh, there was a study on, on that. Um, that was interesting. Maybe we'll, maybe I'll see if I can dig it up and maybe we can discuss that one too, because then you'd have DHEA, DHT, um, and then I think Georgie has talked about testosterone reversing, uh, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So, and I'm sure testosterone has some positive effects on the gut as well. So just seeing androgens having positive effects overall. Um, the second thing I was going to talk about is that DHEA besides like what you discussed there, improving the, the pain in the gut and response to endotoxin, et cetera, is also a potent immune stimulant as well. So, and it also has anti, obviously anti-cortisol effects, which is some of its main mechanisms. So DHEA has a whole bunch of beneficial effects. I actually experimented a little bit. So you had your post on taking DHEA, right, to for increasing steroids for workouts uh, or androgens before workouts. That was correct, right? That's that yeah. was one that you, yeah. So you actually wrote an you wrote an article on it. Am I correct? It wasn't yeah, just a, yeah, yeah, topical DHEA. Yeah. yeah. So I um, so I was like, oh, let me take a little bit and see how it feels because I haven't used DHEA in a really long time. I really prefer pregnenolone uh, personally. Um, I just, that I, for sleep, for me, like I take a little pregnenolone before sleep. I take like, I think 70 milligrams sometimes. And man, I sleep good. <laughs> I sleep really good with the pregnenolone. Um, but I do take it orally, not topically. So I did. The, so I've done DHEA topically in the past and I didn't, I didn't really like the response from it. Although it was, um, it wasn't like the, some of the, the, uh, what are they called? the carriers that I think Georgie puts the products in and some of the carriers that he had put that he's put the products in, I haven't reacted well to before. I don't exactly know what the saturated fatty esters are or whatnot, but some of those things I haven't reacted well to. Um, so that this, so I haven't, I didn't have any topical or anything like that, but I took, I took like just like a small dose 
like a couple milligrams, I think like maybe like five or 10 milligrams orally. And I definitely had a, like a quite a potent, like androgenic response from that. Like I definitely felt it. Um, the only, and I didn't notice anything for gut, but I wasn't having any gut, gut pain or anything like that. But I did notice that the DHEA, it like, it kind of like my appetite went down a little bit. Like I wasn't as hungry. Um, but I did notice like a really potent, like an androgenic response, like pretty much within the, like 20, 30 minutes or so. It was like, whoa, like I, my muscles started to feel tight. My veins started popping out a little bit. Um, and like, I just like got like a little bit of drive, like a little bit of like a, that, like a mental drive. So I definitely think, um, there's some benefits to DHEA for sure. I know there's in the mainstream, it's like kind of crapped on. It's like, even in the bodybuilding, you're like, why would you take DHEA, right? Like it doesn't do anything. It doesn't convert to testosterone, bro. (laughs) But I think that there's a lot of benefit to DHEA, to pregnenolone, to uh, DHEA, and even to testosterone and and also progesterone. Although I'm not as much of a fan as progesterone for guys. Cause I, for me, like it doesn't make me feel good. Although some guys really like it. But I think that there could be a, like a stack could be created with low dose, quite low doses of all of those steroids that would be like a replacement for like guys who weren't producing a lot of tea or, or older guys who younger guys who weren't producing a, a lot of testosterone or having issues with hormones, at least to carry them over while they fixed other things or after they fixed other things and it's still not working. And then for older guys, I think that those things could be, could be quite helpful actually, um, just not in these massive doses that people are taking. And I think there was a post even recently on the forum that in obese men, they gave them, um, they were gave them testosterone for like five years. And I don't think they changed anything else. And after five years, I think they had lost on average 50 pounds, which is like a decent amount of weight to lose without really doing yeah. a, a lot or anything else. So, um, and I also think that that like studies like that, and I'm going to have to go through it a little bit more in depth. So maybe we'll even discuss it at some point, but um, studies like that just show the power of hormones. Like the, and I think that brings into question a lot of the calories in calories out dogma in the mainstream overall, looking at the hormone profile. And just, I think you, you did a series inside your newsletter on calories in calories out. Like it was like a six part series, right? Yeah. Yeah, that was pretty cool. Um, I, I still believe more or less in calories in, calories out. You can be modulated a little bit um, with like thyroids and androgens and stuff, but I don't think people should expect miracles. It, it can work for sure, but it's uh, if your diet's not in check, don't expect miracles unless you're going to wait five years <laughs> or something like that. I know a lot of people don't have patience to wait like even a year or a few months. Well, I think there's a difference between like legitimate understanding of calories in, calories out versus the mainstream view. I think the mainstream view doesn't understand, like it's like calories in calories out is everything. Whereas if you put, you have to put calories in calories out in the perspective of the body adjusting metabolism, the effects of these different compounds, the effects of like, for example, you can do calories in calories out and then, but you can also take an SSRI and blow up your metabolism as well. Or you can be eating a ton of soy or you can be eating a ton of poof or you can be, and then that's still calories in calories out. It's just that these other things are modulating your calories out. So you can keep lowering your calories in, but if your calorie output is so low because you're doing a bunch of crappy things to yourself, then it doesn't really matter how low you're going to get. You're just going to cause other problems with nutrient deficiencies, et cetera. Yeah. So I think that the mainstream perspective doesn't take any of that into consideration. It's just pure calories in calories out. 
I, I want to rant a little bit about testosterone, but I think we can do this next episode. So I want to like just share a little bit of my thoughts and then um, maybe we can dig a little bit deeper in it next episode. So, you know, you have this difference between the testosterone base, which is a relatively short half-life, and then you have the testosterone esters, which has longer half-lives. And I, th- I this is just hypothesis, but I think the ester um, makes the testosterone more anabolic because because of the ester, you actually have higher levels of testosterone specifically in the blood. So the testosterone half-lives become much longer because of the ester. But if you take it orally, that testosterone is rapidly converted into like DHD or androsterone. It's interesting. Um, they, they, they checked uh, testosterone oral base and it significantly increased the urinary excretion of androsterone over a couple of days. So the body does like to convert testosterone and DHA into the predominant androgenic pool metabolites, androstenediol, uh, 3-alpha and 3-betadiol, and androsterone, and not so much the, uh, DHE, uh, DHT. So, and there was another study looking at um, these people that had normal testosterone, but if their androsterone wasn't good enough, they didn't really have a lot of libido. And then the people that had higher androsterone and normal testosterone, they had highest libido. And I think it's a lot determined by how effectively your body is converting that into the five alpha reduced steroids, which having the beneficial effect on the libido and the sexual function. Um, but what I wanted to mention is, so these like androsterone and androstenediol isn't very anabolic. It's, it's weak androgens. So if the body prefers to convert them into those steroids, that's why you're not really getting an anabolic effect from a testosterone base because it's rapidly converted into weaker androgens. But if you're using a testosterone ester, if the testosterone stays longer in your system, the testosterone specifically is anabolic. And also the other hypothesis that I have is the reason why people, let's say you're natty and your testosterone is 1000. You're not going to get better hypertrophy than someone that has testosterone about 500, for example, not necessarily because it also depends on the androgen receptor. But if you're natty, you're most likely to have a one-to-one ratio of uh, testosterone to epitestosterone. Epitestosterone is an anti-androgen. So if you use testosterone, you automatically shift the ratio between testosterone and epitestosterone, having a stronger anabolic effect. So this is just some of the thoughts I'm having about like the difference between testosterone base and testosterone esters, because the main reason why uh, the, the, the thought process of why I'm not using steroids is because I don't want to suppress myself long-term and cause all of these side effects that I see a lot of guys get when they dabble in steroids specifically and testosterone, like the modified testosterone. So if you can use like a testosterone base and it can have anabolic or androgenic effects and it's not suppressing you or you can recover in a week, you know, and it's not going to cause long-term side effects, why not use it? But the thing is, if it's not going to be anabolic, then it's like, okay, well, that's of no use. And you can just maintain your androgenic pool by using topical DHA. Yeah. Well, I think you're digging into other steroids that people don't even consider, like androsterone and epitestosterone, et cetera. And then three beta diol, three alpha, di- well, I guess three alpha diol is considered like an estrogenic metabolite. Or yeah, it's very a- weak, an estrogen uh, receptor beta. Yeah. So most people, most bros or the te- or in the trt community at least from what i've seen are just considering shbg estrogen testosterone and possibly dht that's like the focus they're not lo- a lot of times there's no consideration for prolactin there's no consideration i mean prolactin is becoming more recognized that's definitely that's not fair to say because now prolact people are looking at prolactin I'm not looking at cortisol it's a lot of time are they looking at dhea maybe are they looking at thyroid maybe 
Um, and there's, and, but like the, even the mainstream service level stuff is literally what's your T and what's your estrogen. And like, that's it. And so it's just like the, if you go to a doctor, um, especially a more common one, there are some like, like well-known boutique guys who I'm sure will look at all this stuff, but the more common doctors are probably going to just look at your, look at your testosterone, your estrogen, give you a, some like injectable tea with an ester and then give you a, uh, um, aromatase inhibitor and send you on your merry way. Uh, but yeah, I think you're looking at like a whole host of other things. And even with every single hormone, it's not just the hormone that we're looking at. Even with thyroid, there's a whole pathway to look at. And the pathway is even more in depth. Like I've done a video on the pathways, um, before, but the pathway can get like quite in depth, especially if you're looking at some of the other metabolites and then that, that can come even with thyroid. And then also even with glucocorticoids, right? Like you have your, your serum cortisol, but then you have the 11 beta HSD one and two, um, enzymes at the cell. And then those that can change the cycling of cortisol at the cellular level. So like, there's a lot more things in depth to look at than just, Oh, Oh, your, t- your T is 1000, bro. You're good. It's like, okay. Um, and, and the reason why I think you brought that up is because you have guys who have like T T's of like a thousand or high or whatnot. And they have these symptoms of like, Oh, um, I can't get an erection. My libido is poor, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All this stuff. And it's like, Oh, but my T is good. It's like, well, yeah, because there's more to the picture than just what your T is. And I've experienced that myself. I think I've discussed where like my T was high, but I was still having certain symptoms that I, that I didn't like. And then even recently, I think a good example of this is that I was taking a whole, a lot of whole macadamia nuts at work, like eating a lot, like eating a whole bag a day. And it was affecting my libido to some extent. That was what actually, when I cut those out, that was like the biggest thing that made a difference. And what we were looking at with those was higher. What I, what my hypothesis is the higher amounts of beta cystosterol that I was taking in from the nuts that I wasn't eating prior to that was it probably changing my conversion of, um, testosterone to DHT or whatnot, um, by lowering five AR and then also perhaps infecting ster- steroidogenesis to some extent. Um, cause they do have an effect on cholesterol. So it could be related to that. And then also changing to having more saturated fat through the goat butter, I think made a difference as well, but overall, yeah, there's, there's quite a few factors to look into and there's quite a few different hormones besides just testosterone and estrogen. And even with estrogen, right. The Georgie has brought up there's three different types of estrogen in the serum that they look at, but Georgie's brought up the importance of like estrone sulfate and looking at things like that, as well as estradiol. Um, and then in the bodybuilding community, making sure you're doing like ultra sensitive estradiol and whatnot, rather than just like a regular estradiol blood test. Uh, and then you have estriol, which I don't know too much about. Um, I haven't really looked too much into that one, but go ahead. I think this is where the Dutch test becomes really good because it looks at all of these metabolites. So there's like 16, as far as I know, estrogen metabolites so far, you know, and people look, only look at estradiol. How are you ever going to know your total estrogen pool if you only look at that one metabolite? And this is the same with your androgens. Like you can't look at testosterone and maybe even DHT and think like, oh, my androgen pool is good. No, it's not because you're not looking at like all of the gazillion other metabolites that you have. You actually have a pool and this is all like the sum of this one and the sum and sum and sum and sum, all of these collected together is kind of like the pool of the androgens. And there was a study that I looked at. Ah, let me just turn my phone on silent. Sorry, man. No, you're good. Should have. Uh, anyway, um, that uh, these people with the five alpha reductase mutations and stuff, 
um, it's not very good to look at the, only the testosterone to DHT ratio. When it comes to analyzing androgens, you have to look at, it was a specific ratio, it was androsterone to, uh, I think it was epi, uh, kind of butcher this name, but it was a different metabolite. So it's kind of like the, um, the five alpha and the, the five beta enzymes, the oh. two ratios of those. And then the thyroid can shift you um, more into the five alpha ratio, increasing the, the androsterone to epi, uh, so, so someone else, I don't want to butcher that name. <laughs> right now, let's shift that ratio to so thyroid upregulate to five alpha reductase. So the Dutch test looks at like androsterone and all of these other metabolites, look at the total androgen pool, total estrogen pool, and this can give you a good ratio, uh, idea of kind of like, you know, all the pools and, and what's going on. Uh, but it's going to be so much data that I think a lot of people are like, oh, what the, what's going on? Um, yeah. yeah, there's some thoughts, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you, there's layers to it, obviously. You can, you, if you're going to get lab test, like I still would recommend basic lab testing sometimes just to give you an idea, right? Because if you have like quite low testosterone, you have elevated prolactin, your estrogen is elevated, your cortisol is elevated, whatever your vitamin D3 is low, like these are all things that are correctable to, and, and that can give you an idea and are helpful to look at. But it's also why I think taking symptoms into the picture is always extremely important and how you're feeling regardless of what your lab tests say, because your symptoms are an indication of what's actually going on in real time. Whereas a lab test is just one snapshot of, of a bunch of these mediators that we don't like, we don't even have full pictures of, you know, we have, we have some idea, but we don't get like, we don't know all of these different metabolites and mediators, how they all interplay, et cetera. And it's more than just the general ones that, that we're told about, like, we don't know what we don't know yet. That's basically where we're at, but we do know that we don't know. I know that maybe I'm getting a little confusing there, but um, <laughs> yeah, that's a symptoms and your actual everyday function are good indicators of where you're at. And so for androgens or anything like that, it's like, are you getting morning wood? Do you have libido? Are you, how are your workouts in the gym? How's your mental drive? How's your interaction with your girlfriend or women in your life, et cetera. Um, you know, all different things like that. Uh, so it's just things, important things to, to keep in mind and then adjust from there, right? Make mm -hmm. the adjustments from there. Yeah, the, exactly. Um, before anyone becomes overwhelmed with, you know, all of this different metabolites and ratios and analyzing blood tests and whatnot, it's like, how do you feel? Analyze that and then go by the basics, fix the lifestyle, fix the diet. That's obviously going to make the biggest difference because now you're like looking at this ratio. It's like, oh, what's missing? Well, let's just eat some food. You get the nutrients that's going to, uh, provide the vitamins and minerals that's going to regulate the enzymes that's going to fix the ratios in the first place. So you have imbalance in the ratios because perhaps you have inflammation, you have a nutrient deficiency, you're just stressing, you know, something is going on that's going to creating these, this ratio. So just stick to the basics of, um, you know, the diet and the lifestyle that, that's going to make the biggest difference before stressing about this. And then if your symptoms doesn't improve, then you can start looking at it because sometimes someone can have like a testosterone 400, but they feel awesome. It's nothing wrong. Someone else can have testosterone of 800 and feel like, well, I feel very non-androgenic. So it's always important to go by symptoms, as you mentioned. Yeah. Yeah. And the solutions are simple. Most often the solutions are simple and they just take a little time. I think that's important to keep in mind. Yeah. All right, guys, this wraps it up for this episode. The whole point here is that focus on diet and lifestyle. Become an alpha dad if you want an alpha baby. <laughs> that's the whole point hashtag alpha dad <laughs> alpha, <laughs> alpha dad alright check you guys in the next one peace out cheers guys